my name is Alan, for those of you who are new or relatively new. Uh, it's so good to see so many faces and to be able to fellowship together, even though it may be virtual, it is definitely still a privilege to be able to study God's word together. Um, as a fellowship group, we have been in the book of Malachi for one week now, and so we, re we resume our study of the book of Malachi. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Malachi. We'll be looking at Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. Just find Matthew, flip one book back, and then you're at Malachi. So we're in Malachi chapter 1. We'll be finishing this chapter starting from verse 6 to 14. I'll go ahead and read our section of scripture, and then we will pray and ask for the Lord's help and blessing. Malachi 1, beginning verse 6. This is the word of God. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. God, indeed, you are a great king, and it ought to humble our hearts that you would speak to us. Lord, it ought to create this environment where we take your word seriously, Lord, it is a heavy passage, for in it you indict the people, the Israelites, of their lackadaisical nature when it comes to worshiping you. And Lord, we are not without guilt as well. We can see ways in which we have been half-hearted in our devotion, in our love for you. And we pray that difficult passages like this would point us all the more towards Christ would show us, yes, our weakness, but our strength in him, that you would supply the grace. And so use your word, Lord, to shape and fashion us, to become more and more like your son, to encourage faith, Lord, 
Lord, we want to believe. And so we pray that you would increase uh, our faith, that we might uh, put to practice the things found in this passage, that we might be stirred, challenged, and convicted. And that you may be honored, Lord, not only as we gather, but Lord, individually and throughout our weeks, whether we're at work or eating dinner, Lord, may you be glorified. And so be praised now, even as we study your word, that you would incline our hearts to your son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last class I took in my seminary career was a class called Pastor's Home. And this class outlined how a pastor should manage and shepherd his household. We were taught the roles of husband and wife and biblical principles for uh, budgeting and hospitality and other family-related topics. And each week, various members of the faculty would come in and share practical insights from their own experiences. Well, for one class, the academic dean of the seminary came in to address the students on parenting. And it was really good, really helpful. But I will admit, some of the advice seemed a bit, how should I put this, non-Asian, not traditional. Um, for example, he said he and his wife would try to be yes parents, meaning that whatever their children ask within the bounds of scripture, they lean towards the affirmative, saying yes. If their kids wanted to attend a friend's sleepover party or catch the latest blockbuster, to the best of their abilities, they would try to let them go to say yes. And this sounded very strange, unreal, and nice to me because I was raised in your typical Asian household with no parents. No, you cannot go to the movies. No, you can't have allowance, but yes, you can practice piano and study for the SATs. I mean, I didn't even ask about the last one. So all in all, I was a bit shocked to hear how yes was the default setting for these parents. But that academic dean didn't make a caveat before we all rushed him and asked him to adopt us into his family. He wasn't so loose to just set his kids free without any restrictions or parameters, any guidelines. He would warn his children as they were leaving the house. He always told them to remember three letters, M-F-H, maintain the family honor. MFH, a short acronym to teach and remind his boys that they always represented the family. As they hung out with their friends, played sports, or went out to eat, they were to conduct themselves in a way that wouldn't bring shame to their parents. They were to behave in such a manner that they would honor the family name. That people would know just by observing and interacting with them that this family was a family of decency and integrity, a family that worshiped God. Now, two weeks ago, we kicked off our series on the book of Malachi. And what a kickoff it was, because right out the gates, God declares his steadfast love. And this was remarkable because of the track record of the recipients. Though the people of God, Israel, as we learned, were unfaithful, God was resilient and faithful to his own. His unwavering love was evidenced and expressed all the way into the beginning. 
in his election. That by his own gracious choice, God covenants with his people, entering into a personal relationship with them, setting his affection in favor upon them, effectively adopting them into his family. That the Lord is a father to children he has ransomed and redeemed. And today, the truth still rings loudly. That God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in Christ, by repentance and faith, we have been ransomed and redeemed so that we are now his. We belong to him. Which is why we've titled our sermon series on the book of Malachi, A Covenant Love, A Committed Life. That through the glories of the gospel, we have been loved, chosen, and adopted into the family of God. He is our heavenly father, and we are his precious children. And we are to reflect this wonderful reality, this gracious relationship in committed lives, in response and obedience to our good heavenly father. It's as Jesus presented plainly in the gospel of John, that if you love me, you will what? You obey, keep my commandments so that every time you and I hang out with friends, every deed at work or even response to criticism, every conversation about politics, coronavirus, or any controversial topic, every moment you live, whether intentional or unintentional, whether you like it or not, you are afforded the opportunity to represent the family of God. MFH. Maintain the family honor. And this pithy catchphrase has another name. It's called worship. Worship. Sadly, as we read in our passage tonight, the Israelites, the people of God, they are a poor example. In many ways, they serve as a foil to what we should be, what we should do. Instead of a committed life, we find the exact opposite a cavalier life, a heartless worship of God. You know, Malachi can be a pretty depressing read if you only focus on failure. But this book, this section of scripture is a guiding light for us. It's provided not so that we merely despair over the people's disobedience and rebellion. No, we are meant to learn from their mistakes so we don't make the same ones. We're to avoid the pitfalls of a heartless worship so that we might have the right heart when it comes to approaching God, when it comes to worshiping him in all areas of our lives, that we would maintain the family honor. With that in mind, we dive into our passage in chapter one. Now, as you might recall, Malachi is arranged into six main arguments. God brings his allegation and people refute in the form of Q&A, going back and forth. And our passage contains the second major dispute in the book. And it forms our first point for this message. Our first point is the charge of heartless worship. The charge of heartless worship. Look again at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? It opens up by striking at 
a truth we would all acknowledge and accept. That under perfect conditions, and even in imperfect ones, every person knows a son should honor their father. Everyone knows a servant should respect and fear his master. A son that doesn't is shameful. A servant that doesn't is rebellious. You know, we shake our heads in disbelief when we see a boy or girl yell back at their father at the store. You know, something that as a dad, I've obviously never experienced in my life. We're shocked when an employee puts his boss on blast. In both situations, honor and respect are usually the norm. They're assumed. Well, God is elevating the situation. He is far better than any good earthly father and wields more authority than any mighty master. And guess what? The Israelites, they know this. They had a front row seat to all of this. And he is pulling them in saying, you've seen my faithful, tender love through the years and my unparalleled power throughout the ages. You've experienced them firsthand. I am your divine father and master. So the question that remains is, where is my honor? And to get his point across, look at what's continually underlined in this passage. Eight times in these nine verses, God is called what? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. This is intentional here. God is hammering it home. He is worthy. He is the Lord of hosts. Now, host here is not some docile servant that bends the knee and says, welcome to my house. Please take off your shoe and come in, come in. No, in the Bible, the word for host here refers to vast numbers of armies, of angels, of stars even. And our God, our God and the Israelites' God, he is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign over them all. Do you get what Malachi wants us to see? We are to behold the one who holds it all. God is not some passive or puny divine doormat or some ethereal deity in an ancient story. He is almighty. He is the majestic one, the great I am, the ruler and maker of all. He possesses all nations, all armies, all creation and creatures in the palm of his hand at his disposal. I mean, consider that. God has command over myriads of angels, each one capable of wiping out military forces in a blink of an eye. God places each star, all trillions of them, in their specific place and upholds them every single second by his mere word. I mean, do you and I have authority over nations? Can you boss around angelic beings or push celestial bodies around and keep them glowing in the darkest of night? And yet this incomparable, omnipotent God condescends himself so that he's noble, so that he's near, so that he is a kind father. But friends, don't confuse his humility and grace for weakness. And yet, the God we often worship appears much smaller than the one Malachi speaks for. And this is exactly the indictment that the Lord of hosts brings against 
the priest. Now think about that, the priests. These were the religious leaders responsible for setting the spiritual climate of the nation by reverencing God themselves and ushering the people to do the same. But notice how the Lord of hosts labels these priests. He identifies them as people who despise his name, who diminish the Lord of hosts and make him the Lord of nothing. Instead of leading people towards God, they were leading people away from God. Instead of devotion, we find despising. They had taken the name of God, his character, his reputation, his renown, and they had dragged it through the mud by how they treated it. But the priests are too proud to go down without a fight. And so they retort, how? How, God? On what grounds do you launch your baseless accusation? We're doing our duties. How can you make these charges? We're still making sacrifices in the temple. And watch how the Lord builds his case. Fine. You want to talk about sacrifices? Let's go to the altar. And we reach our second point, the proof of heartless worship. The proof of heartless worship. It begins to be unpacked for us in verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? We'll stop there. I want you to breathe in and soak in this scene. Put yourself there. You know, you're approaching the temple of God and you hear the loud bleeding of animals. And so curious, you turn to take a closer look to inspect. And what do you discover? You see goats cloudy eyes, blindly bumping into each other, oxen limping with flies hovering over their open wounds, sheep with pus oozing from their nostrils, from their mouth. I mean, these animals, let's be honest, they're closer to death than life. And if that wasn't bad enough, if you jump down to verse 13, the text tells us how people were even bringing animals taken by violence. I mean, that's crazy. They were offering what was stolen and seized through physical force. It'd be as ludicrous and outrageous as a bank robber tithing his loot. And yet, whether disfigured or stolen, each animal mutant is brought one by one to the priest. And here's the real jaw dropper. These leaders, they sign off on it. They're okay with it. The priests offered these mangled animals as holy sacrifices to God. Suffice to say, something is terribly wrong. And God moves from the greater to the lesser, from how they have treated him to how they treat others in verse 8. The verse finishes, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Would any of you dare bring home a rotting turkey on Thanksgiving? Would any of you serve a, a moldy sandwich if you were a plain host to your celebrity crush, your city official, or your favorite athlete? No, it wouldn't cross your mind to serve up such a meal unless you were deliberately trying to offend them. I mean, if you said, hey, Pastor Allen, I want to treat you to dinner, I'd be very happy. And then if you took me to Denny's, 
and then pulled me around to the back to where the dumpster is and said, eat up. Well, then I'd be really sad, right? I would get the message. And so does God. Trash is for a trashy person. But notice the audacity of these people. They give their worst, and yet they're bold enough to ask for God's best. They have the nerve to demand his blessing. Malachi remarks sarcastically in verse 9, follow along, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift, this lame and sick gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? I mean, I think we get the idea here. It's like a kid who tells his mom, I hate you, but can I have ice cream still? Or giving dead flowers and a half-eaten donut to a girl you're interested in and see how that goes for you. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work out. It's common sense, right? We've had the golden rule ingrained into us since we were little kids. That you treat others how you want to be treated. There should be some sort of consistency between two parties. And when the relationship is heavily distorted and slanted one way, you know what we call that person? A leech, a parasite, a user. We get this on a human level, but we can be so oblivious when it comes to God that we pray only when problems come up. We make our annual appearance to church for Christmas service. And look, God is gracious, but that doesn't give us license to abuse his grace. Well, it doesn't get better in our passage. You skip down to verse 12. It says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? I want you to key in here on the first part of verse 13. The priests go overboard in telling God he's overbearing. They're fed up with all the rules and regulation, and their attitude is finally articulated. God you're too tedious. You're wearisome. You expect too much. You know what they're saying? You can boil it down. Match their words to their conviction. You aren't worth it, God. You aren't worth all the attention to details. Why? You see, we prepare the most for what we prize the most. You make sure your clothes are pressed, that you're Hair is done. Your breath smells nice. When you realize you're going to meet up with someone important, wearing Sunday's best is no problem when they are the best. But when the individual isn't very high in your rankings, that's when you're likely to mail it in. That's when you're likely to complain. The principle is clear. When will you pay attention to details? When will you seek to honor God even in the small and mundane things, things that seem tedious and overbearing? Well, it's very simple. When God is esteemed as supreme and ultimate, when you recognize God is worthy of your excellence in everything, big or small, 
That's why the famous quote by A.W. Tozer resonates with us. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because it informs and influences everything else, the aftermath, what we do. And it's true. We've seen it in our own lives. What we think of God dictates what we're willing to do for God. In these verses, we're given a window into the mind of the priest. Why can't the table be a little dirty? Why can't the food be oh, just a little decayed? God, you are wearisome. If you need translations, God, you are not worthy. Their actions and words betray their heart, or rather their heartlessness. The common people, well, they fare no better. Look at verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, so he promises it to God, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. You see, the accusation isn't against their unwillingness to give. As we've just read, they gave all right. But their guilt is in what they gave. They made big promises. God, I'll bring you my greatest, my finest. I'll sacrifice a strong and healthy male from my flock. Firstborn, prized possession, it's yours. But they oversold and underdelivered. The proof is in the pudding. The tree is known by her fruit. What did they really bring? The sheep festering with disease. The lamb with a broken leg. Why? Because here's the bottom line. A good sheep is too good for God. Praxis, I think the idea comes to the surface. Let this passage be a mirror for our own hearts, our own lives. What are you bringing to God? Can I gently prod and ask, is God getting the crumbs, the hand-me-downs, the lame and the sick? And you can tell him, God, I'll give you my money. But in your mind, it's only after you've had enough to satisfy your own wants. After you deck out your wardrobe or put a down payment towards a house. After you've saved enough to live comfortably, then what remains can be forked over. You may boast, God, I'll give you my devotion. But what's the disclaimer? After you've had diploma in hand for your master's degree, after you secure a stable job, settle down with a family, then, then you'll be ready to serve. Maybe you promise God, God, I'll give you my time. But it's only after you spent the most attentive hours, after the best parts of your days are devoted to your job, to meeting up with friends or catching up on your shows. Then if you're not too gassed and tired, you'll glance at his word, maybe utter a short prayer before coasting to sleep. In short, I'll worship you, God, after I'm done worshiping me. But beloved, if we're not faithful today, on what grounds do we think we'll be faithful tomorrow? If we're not worshiping God today, uh, on what condition are we so confident that we will be worshiping him tomorrow? We all know talk is cheap, especially when you're moving in the other direction. And look, God is no fool. He's not duped. 
He won't be victimized by manipulation. He has strong words. God calls it as it is. Cursed is the cheat. You are the cheat telling me this and that, but your life shows what you worship is not me, but yourself. Listen, we all worship. We're very big on this at Lighthouse. The heart is always worshiping because the heart is always treasuring. And if it's not God, then it will be something else. If your treasure isn't in heaven, then it's going to be on earth. And for the most part, the things we treasure, they're not inherently bad or evil. You know, career, relationships, vacation, pleasures, these are good things. But good things devolve and become bad things when they replace the greatest thing. Perhaps that's precisely why some of you find God so boring. It's because you find this world so enticing. As one pastor put it, he said, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with a streetlight. If you never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Worship is life. And life, life is worship. God tugs on the various parts of your life to draw your heart so you can examine it. The proof of what you worship is demonstrated and visible in how you live. The point is this. When it means little to us, it means little to God. But take heart because the opposite can be true. That's why a widow's two copper coins can be more valuable than a billionaire's fat donation. Because the issue is not giving in and of itself. The issue is the heart manifested, the heart being given because truth be told, this is the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts has no need of the healthiest animal, largest paycheck, or your early mornings. He wants you. So what are we to do? When we see our lives lackluster, cavalier in our worship of God, are we just supposed to shrug our shoulders and just wait until we feel some pious bolt some holy desire bubbling up? Well, did you catch what determines how we worship in this passage? The low value the people place on the worship of God accords with their low view of God. They bring out the defects because their view is defective. But it's when we're captivated by the infinite worth of God that all the proper attitudes and actions then line up. They follow. We land on our last point, the heart of heartless worship. So we've seen the charge, the proof, and finally the heart of heartless worship. Here's what is absent. We find it if we rewind back to verse 10. God God announces, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Why? Verse 11. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And look at verse 14. After cursing the cheat, here's why. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Far from honoring God, these people insulted him with their careless conduct. It was a front, a slap to his face. Better no offering than open mockery. So God says, shut it all down. Everything the priests and the people brought was rejected because it was missing the key ingredient. A heart. A heart that acknowledges and honors and fears the Lord. That recognizes his name is great. As so often repeated in these verses. You see, the solution is not only, and I stress that, the solution is not only to read more, to pray longer, to pray harder, harder, to do better. The solution is not just something you can muster up through discipline alone, by your own efforts or merits. The solution is to see. Sight. Practice we're good at doing. We need to be better at beholding. To behold the glory of God shining through his word. So yes, read more, pray longer, come to church, but don't mix up the rhythm of grace with the reason. These are all gracious means to get us to him. That we would toil and labor in these disciplines because we want to behold him. Malachi projects us to the future when God's greatness will be evident, will be undeniable. Where the sun rises to where it sets, God's name will be exalted by all of creation. Wherever an incense is burned, people will praise God instead of one-eyed bulls and hobbling goats, instead of sloppy seconds and scraps. The only offerings brought before God will be pure and acceptable. In every place, at every moment, with every gift, God's greatness will be manifested as people worship him. Why? What will cause this change? And people will see God for who he is. The end of verse 14, for I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. What's the lesson? Worship. Worship is always chained to wonder. Worship is always chained to wonder. Stay with me. You might have, say, a friendly dog named Lassie. You know, that provides companionship. Maybe even saves your life from time to time. You might even take a week off of work when good old Lassie passes. But you never feel the compulsion to bow down and worship the little pup. Or how about this? When my four-year-old son, Everett, when he throws his miniature basketball through his little tight hoop, you know, I don't find this inescapable urge to plant my face to the ground and chant his name ever, ever, ever in lifelong devotion to him. But when Kobe, when Kobe drops 81, well, I might be tempted. Jokes aside, what makes the difference? Because the one essential element to worship is greatness. 
greatness. A son admires his father and a servant obeys his master because they are superior. They are categorically in another level. Greatness is what overwhelms your heart with awe. Greatness is indispensable to worship. The priests and the people, well, they miss it. A God they offer their blind, lame, and sick to is a God they see as blind, lame, and sick. In fact, if anything, it's more indicative of their own condition that they are blind, lame, and sick. It's the same for us. Our worship is heartless when our hearts are godless. This is much of the battleground, that we would steep our souls with the glory of God, with how great he is, until can becomes must, that we must worship him. That's when you'll voraciously digest his word. That's when you'll joyfully labor in prayer. That's when you will pour yourself out in service. That's why you will long to speak of his name to unbelievers and believers alike because he is worthy of your life and your life is about his worship. But I know what you might be wrestling with. What if I'm not there? What if that's just not what I'm feeling? What do I do then? Well, I kind of alluded to this earlier. But my counsel and my encouragement to you is to place yourself in the right context. Put yourself in the right path. Because our habits can help shape our hearts. They can cultivate what we love. Look, if you acknowledge that your heart isn't where it should be, well, your heart isn't going to be fixed by running away from God, but running towards him. You're not going to magically wake up one day with a renewed desire to love and worship him apart from God. And so when your affections are waning, when they are growing stale, put yourself in an environment where your heart can be kindled, where your affections can be raised. Put yourself in the context of the church, of practice, of a community of believers who will hold you accountable, who will encourage you with the word, who will pray for you, that your eyes might be open to the majesty of this great king. Expose yourself to grace until it seeps in and lays root down. The constant battle in my chest is to get my heart to acknowledge the God of the Bible, and not the God of my own choosing. The more I study his word and the closer I walk with him, the more I see areas in my life that show him to be heavy-handed, impotent, stupid. But the God of scripture, the God revealed in the holy word is gracious, omnipotent, and wise. And the ongoing struggle, the crossroad I'm often placed before, is whether I will submit to my own ideas of who God is and what he should do, or if I will let him speak for himself through the pages of scripture. Will I live my life reflecting the glorious God found in his word, or a God of my own imagination, choosing, or preference? Practice the point of application are endless, because this invades all realms of life. Think of it like this. Are you steaming when your day is not going according to your plans? When you're lashing out because uh, your schedule is hijacked or maybe even your year is hijacked 
What does that say? Well, you're angry because you don't believe in your heart that God is sovereign, that God is good. You know, maybe are, are you ecstatic over a sports game that runs into overtime or an extended sale at your favorite store, but you become fidgety or disgruntled when service or small group runs a little long? What does that really say? God, God is boring. Are you preoccupied with work, hobbies, or relaxing that you never get to communion with God? What does that say? That God is not that important. Are you like the Israelites, giving your best to everything else but bringing God leftover energy, leftover resources, leftover affection? What does that say? God, God is my leftover life. But the scriptures paint a different picture for the Christian life. That famous verse in Romans, Romans 12, 1, where Paul declares, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Similar language to our passage, yet drastic changes. We no longer shed the blood of goats and bulls. We don't light up incense as an offering to God on Sundays. No, we bring ourselves set aflame with one all-consuming passion to make bright the glorious name of Jesus Christ through our lives, by our worship of him. And there's no holding back. It's the entirety of ourselves given, devoted to God. And notice the sequence of events in Romans 12.1. The order is crucial. Our worship is in response to the mercies of God, to the good news of God's righteousness. It is not earned by temple ordinances or religious duties. It is gifted. And so we do what any gift receiver does. We rejoice. We respond. We react to God's gracious and great act. Now, through the gospel... He has paved the way that at the cross, he has demonstrated what he requires. Yes, we are living sacrifices, but Christ, Christ first is our sacrifice. And there we are assured that whatever we give, whatever we offer, we can't outgive God. We bask in the fullness of God's covenant love until we commit ourselves, our very lives to his worship. Let's pray. God, what a sobering passage. Because it causes us to inspect carefully ways in which we have been diminishing you. Lord, rounding the corners, cheating you. Father, when you have been so patient and kind, Lord, we have taken those things for granted. And so we pray for much grace, that you would correct us, that you would... Give us eyes to behold your majesty, your wonder, your lovely attributes. That what would be fostered in our hearts would be a desire and inclination towards the things of Christ. That we would heed the words of Paul. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And may that be the filter to sift through all of our endeavors, all of our pursuits, our words that leave our lips, the thoughts that circulate in our minds. May it all be committed to you. 
and we trust even when we falter, when we sin. You're so patient and kind with us. And may that engender and prompt us all the more to live for you. We thank you so much for your word. We pray that it would uh, brew in our minds and in our hearts, that it would flow forth into our lives, lives transformed and changed, that we might testify to the goodness of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.